this is Annie, and you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. Today, we have a bonus interview for you, continuing our conversation around women in tabletop games and the world of tabletop game development. We recorded it a little while ago, so this is like a collision of past Annie and present Annie. I hope it doesn't mess with the space-time continuum. But let's jump right in to the past and to the interview. So we're here today to talk more about women in tabletop gaming and specifically developers in tabletop gaming. And we're here with not one, but two Heathers. Hello, Heathers. <laughs> Can you introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about what you what you do? Sure. Uh, I'm Heather O'Neill, CEO of Ninth Level Games, which sounds more exciting than it is. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm a game designer and also do a lot of the business end of the work for our publishing company. And I am Heather Wilson. I am COO of Ninth Level Games, and I do some design work. Um, and I also do a lot of editing. And I um, I get to write our contracts, which some people find very boring, but I find very exciting. <laughs> oh, I am so into contracts. I actually will. I will dive into why it is that at Universal Orlando, <laughs> you can go to like Spider-Man and the Hulk, even though Disney owns them, but you can't in California. <laughs> it's all about contracts. Um, oh. So I, I'm like 100% on board with you with how interesting that is. Um, and you both <laughs> uh, have been involved in developing some games, some pretty rad games, some games that I'm a fan of. Um, would you mind talking about some of the ones that, uh, some of the games that you have developed? Sure. Um, obviously, I think that the, the one Heather is probably also thinking of is our collaboration, which was uh, Schrodinger's Cat. Yeah. It came out in early 2016 after a successful Kickstarter in late uh, 15. Or I guess it was early 16. I can't remember. Um, it's been so many years now. But it was really funny because up until that point, I think, I don't know about this other, but for me, I didn't think I would make a game. I did a lot of like, now the ideas off me. Let me tell you what I think is good. Let me do this. Let me protest it. But didn't think I would make a game. And then we kind of had this concept and we thought to ourselves, well, I think we could probably make this, you know? And then uh, our other partner, Chris, who's my husband, uh, who was already doing some RPG design, was like, yeah, let's do it. Right, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's pretty much exactly it. Like, we were playing sort of a prototype of Schrodinger's Cats, and we thought it'd be fun to just put it out there. And it really changed the direction of the company when we did that, because, you know, before that, we had really only put out role-playing games. And so to find this card game that we were super into and be like, yeah, let's give this a shot... And then it did really well on Kickstarter and it continues to sell really well. And so it allowed us to sort of feel like we had the freedom to make more games that we wanted to make. And so that's what we've been doing and having a really good time doing it. So it sounds like 
neither of you ever expected you would get into this because my next question was going to be, did you ever think that you would be in the development process of tabletop gaming? You know, Heather, you might have. I definitely did not even consider it till probably around 2013. Never even thought about it. I definitely, like, I had had some thoughts about it. I'd gone to some conventions and people were like, making games is easy. You should just make a game. Now, first of all, that's not true. Making games is not easy. But they were right in that, you know, it was a lot of fun. And I I love making stuff. Like, Heather can attest to what my office looks like. It's just like an explosion of craft materials and books and papers and it just hadn't occurred to me, but now that I'm doing it, it's all that I want to do. Like I've always, when I was a kid, I'm like, I'm going to be a writer when I grow up. And I realized that I don't want to tell specific stories. What I want to do is help other people tell stories. And that makes me like really happy and excited. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Um, As someone who is a big tabletop gaming fan, And recently into Dungeons and Dragons, I do think it is a very fun and beneficial way for people to to tell stories. And um, I would love if you could both speak to what does the process entail? Like what goes into making a game? (laughs) This is going to be a long question. There's going to be a long answer. Good. I love them. Um, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because it's not, I don't feel that it's straightforward for every game. It's not steps one through 15 and you have to, your game's always done. Um, There's some milestone points, I would say, that we could touch on, but I feel like they're all different depending on the level of game. Also, we might be unique to this situation, but we have, I would say, three key plus lines one of which is RPG products, one of which is board and card games, and one of which is, as we call, other strangeness. (laughs) It's just weird stuff that we just want to put out. So um, each one of them has a different life cycle. I was just going to say real quick, the three things I'm thinking of, it's, you know, idea, let that percolate for, you know, one one month to six years, however long that ends up taking. Start with an initial design concept, get a rough discussion going about that, play test it possibly, start getting some, you know, concrete ideas written down, get some art, real play testing, go from there. That would probably be the the main line, but it never goes that linear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we we tend to go back and forth. So we'll we'll start with an idea and sometimes that idea immediately leads to a prototype. Sometimes it takes more back and forth. And then we'll we'll do a lot of testing. Normally in our like in all of our product lines, we talk to each other before we put games in front of anyone else. But then after we've sort of like all three of us have looked at it and and gotten a feel for what we want to do, we will bring games to conventions. um, We'll play them with our friends and um, something we've done in the past and we're going to move back into in the next coming years is we'll get 
a game to a point where it feels pretty good, but it's not quite ready to, you know, put in stores and we'll make Ashcan versions and we'll sell those at conventions and online so that people who are fans of what we do can, can play that game early. They can sort of offer us feedback. And a lot of times when we're doing an Ashcan edition, um, it's because we haven't quite nailed down either the aesthetic that we want or there's something we think is missing in the design, but we know the game is already fun. So we want to sort of get it out there into the market and see what people think. Um, and then with our RPGs, um, we are just now moving into a whole new system that Chris has designed. And we're really, really excited to get those out the door because it's something like the system, something he's been working on for years. And um, one of the titles that will come out initially with that system, the excellence is something I've been working on for a couple of years. So it, it takes a while, but the more games we make, the faster the process is. Right. And as you can probably imagine, um, role-playing games, the lead-up is so much longer than a, than a card or a board game. That's longer in the playtesting and the development side, but just getting the core concepts down to even be able to get it to a playable point, right? takes longer yeah. for role-playing. So I would say most of the role-playing products are somewhere between probably two to four years till we actually get them out there. We did a, a kind of a, a expedited one last year called the Tragedy of Middle School, which is an anthology of RPG storytelling and art-type games that we had. How many designers? 15 other designers, I think it was. Yeah, um, yeah it was like 15, 16. So luckily, we didn't have to design them all, but we did a good number of them. <laughs> we had to collaborate with 15 people, which is a lot, a lot of people to uh, coordinate, and Heather did that very well. Um, but that, even that, for being an anthology, I'd say it took about two years to come to fruition from idea to published, and now it's like out for sale, you know? So, yeah, yeah, it was really fast for us. <laughs> Um, I'm going to assume that both of you are players of tabletop games, yes? Yes. Mm-hmm. How did you get into it? Well, I always liked your traditional board games, right? You know, card games, that kind of stuff. So I was into games and, and things like that. And some of my friends, when I was maybe like eighth, ninth grade, were getting into magic. And they told me about it, and I was like, I don't want anything to do with that. <laughs> so I kind of just kind of put it to the side, and they didn't care. I was a sports person, so I just did sports, and I, you know, I didn't really care about it. Um, but then as I got a little bit older, I actually met Chris when I was about 18, and his whole family played games, and my family didn't do that. So it was like, oh, what's this? They're breaking out, you know, risk, they're breaking out. You know, if, even if it was just, um, you know, cards or something, it, I just was craving that to do. I was like, this is so much fun. Let's, let's do this. And that was right around, I don't think it was exactly when Settler of Catan came out in the U.S., but it was a little bit after that. So that was my gateway game. <laughs> it kept me to be like, <laughs> into it. <laughs> so um, that, I started playing that kind of thing, and I, I really wasn't into role-playing or anything at all. And I would say I've probably only been even remotely into 
storytelling and that kind of thing for the maybe the past five or so years. I'm definitely more of an analytical type of speaker person, more the board game person, but Heather mentioned all this earlier, and I just want to touch on this real quick before we forget about it. Um, you were saying your creativity, you just want to make games, and I'm finding that with myself, too. Like, things I used to want to do, like, do a craft or watch a movie or read a book, like, I'm like, what's my game now? <laughs> That's like, it's just something else so fun, and I didn't realize that I, you know, when I was 15 or 16 or, you know, a little kid, I was like, whatever, you know, they're fun. But when I got older and really got into it, I was like, oh, yeah, this is what I wanted to do. Yeah. So for me, uh, I have grown up around games. Like, I remember my grandfather and my uncles playing D&D together when I was in first grade. And when I would stay with my dad, we would always play games together. Like, he would play Mastermind with me. And I have to say, I really appreciate the fact that, like, he would play that game over and over with a small <laughs> child. So props to him. But I, you know, I sort of fell away from it as I like got into middle school and high school. And then when I was in college, I was just looking for something to do. And there was this Lord of the Rings card game. And I was like, well, I'll try that. And then I tried the magic card game. And I was like, oh, okay. And it just sort of went from there. And after college, I ended up working in a comic book in gaming store in Connecticut and through that, I started LARPing and doing more tabletop stuff and starting to go to conventions. And so it all just sort of snowballed into doing this now. Can I ask, um, going off of that, I read a lot of accounts of people, of women specifically, who would go into gaming stores or comic book stores and would kind of be asked, oh your boyfriend likes these games, uh, assuming that they they couldn't possibly be there because they wanted to be there. If if you were working in this comic book store, did you ever experience something like that on, on the other side of like people coming in and assuming you didn't know what you were talking about? You know, strangely, I didn't. Like, I... As I look back on it now, I had a very unique experience because uh, the store at the time I worked for it was owned by uh, two dudes, one who had owned it by himself and then um, ended up looking for a business partner. And one of his partners was actually a full-time nurse. Um, so that uh, nurse came in and sort of like, I think he's the one who made it a bit more welcoming, but you know, I walked in the door and from the first, I felt really at home there. And then as I was behind the counter, generally most people took what I said at face value. I think maybe there were one or two times where someone asked me a comic book question and just kind of like dismissed my answer. But other than that, it was just a shockingly supportive environment. And um, I had a great time working there. Yeah, the other I want to piggyback on this on your question because as an actual girlfriend of a gamer mm-hmm. in my low twenties, okay, um, everybody assumes we, especially when if we were to a game store, literally people would be like, "What? Whoa, why is there a girl even in the school store?" Like that would happen every time we went into a game store, magic tournament, anything like that. But if we ever were talking about games or at a convention or at a game store 
nobody assumed that I would know anything about it, right? They would assume I was just tagging along. Mm-hmm. Um, luckily, I've kind of always been a one of the boys kind of sporty kind of person. So I would just kind of work, go right back at him and be like, actually, no. It just, <laughs> the whole thing. <laughs> but it, it definitely happened. And that was kind of my first experiences with it. And then it wasn't until, I want to say, yeah, about 10 years ago, maybe 2008 was my first convention that I ever went to. So I didn't actually go to a convention until I had already dealt with a lot of those situations. And, you know, surprisingly, what's funnier, I was about to comment on this comment, is I think your experience in a game store, like that's like the best experience. And then you look at something in 2018, and some of these experiences in 2018 have not been so good. And it's like, wait a second. Yeah. What the heck? <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Like, why Why are we reverting, you know? Yeah, I know. It's crazy. We've been going to convention. Well, I've been going on my own since 09, but we've been going as my level since about 2013, including Heather and I. I mean, that's about when we got involved. Um, and then, obviously, Heather, you were probably going before 2009 on your own as a, yep. as a consumer. But I would say yeah. from 2013 on, you know, playing the game, you're working a booth, you're running an event, those kind of things, you're having a meeting or something. Um, not all the time back then would everything be, oh, great, we totally, you're a game designer, awesome. It wouldn't be like that. But I feel like the, the market's just gotten really big in the last five years, and there are a lot of people, a lot more people involved. And I don't know if some of these guys are like, you're taking my hobby away, because it feels like that. But I feel like there's been a little more of a threatening vibe, uh, threatened vibe, I mean, from the gaming community, not everybody, but some of the established people where just this summer at the origin, there were many events, including things where I, Heather and I had to talk afterwards and be like, what the heck just happened? You know, this guy's trying yeah. to tell me I'm, I'm explaining the game wrong, or this, that, it's my game. <laughs> you know, so it was crazy, you know. Um, this year especially, I, I was surprised how, um, how different it was at some of the same conventions we've been going to for a while. Yeah, I I super agree with what Heather said. Like, it's just weird. Like, for years I've been going to cons and I've rarely had issues. And then this past year, it's just been like, what is happening? Like, suddenly there are people who forget that, like, it's not okay to touch strangers and stuff like that. And I, and I, I'm just so surprised. And every time that I get into a situation like that, I'm always surprised because I have this expectation of people in the tabletop world that they're going to be nice and cool and respectful because that's what, you know, the closest gamers around me are. And so when I encounter that, that situation where they're not, it's, not only is it frustrating because the situation is bad, but it's frustrating because I expect better. Yeah. It's interesting that you you say that. I've never been to a tabletop convention like Gen Con or something, but I have been, I researched a lot about it for this episode. And um, it's interesting that you say that it feels like it's gotten worse I was talking to Tracy on the previous episode to this one about um, just playing tabletop games. And we both 
discussed how we had this kind of internalized misogyny that made us think that we weren't meant for this world. Like, this was not our realm. And for me specifically, like... I remember the first time someone, a guy, was like, do you play D&D? And I had a reaction that was like, oh, no, no. And now I play it and I love it. I love it. But I, it was just like a knee-jerk, oh, God, no. Um, and I... Yeah, I kind of see that, yeah. yeah? I, I guess I was kind of like that one, because like, when I first met my husband and his friends were not only just tabletop gamers, but they were also role players and also a lot of the extended crew was, I, I was definitely like, I don't, I didn't know really what it was, but I also kind of was like, okay, this is where I draw the line. I, I did do that back then for sure. That, that definitely happened. And now I'm kind of like, what are we doing? You know, we're mm-hmm. filling the blank. I'll try it, you know? Yeah. I, I For me, it was very much, I thought, <laughs> and I, I'm almost ashamed to admit it now, but I thought it was too complicated for me. Like, it, there's too much involved in D&D. Like, I'm a nerd. I was never like, that's too nerdy. <laughs> it was, that is too complicated. And now that I've played it, I it makes me angry that for so long, I was deterred from this thing that has been very beneficial and helpful and like a social activity for me because I was intimidated by it. And yeah. to this day... Even if I've had a wonderful experience, like it sounds like the both of you have in general had a good experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So have I, but I still feel intimidated when I see there's an event in town where they have um, every other Monday, they have like D&D and it's one of those like, you know, an hour long, here's your character type thing and you show up with strangers and I'm afraid to do it because I'm afraid I will encounter basically misogyny. <laughs> right. Right. Aww. Yeah. Yeah. And and I will that say sucks. Yes. I it know. Does. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you know, and the shame of it is, and I'm I know many people in the in this world, uh gaming world that have said this before, it's okay, we got to go out there. And, you know, a lot of women have said, okay, I'm going to go out there. I'm going to have fun. You know, unfortunately, this bad thing happened last time, but I'm going to keep going back out there. And they do. You know, the shame of it is, you know, especially, like you were saying, you're going to go to a thing you've never gone to before. You're going to try something new. Like, that's scary enough. And then the idea that you're going to go out and potentially get these horror stories that you've heard about. I'm sure you're not the only person. There's probably tons of people that would go and do this, but they just won't because of, uh, of the connotation and the shame of it is same for, for even board games it's like you walk into a or a magic tournament you walk into a room it's going to be like 85% guys uh, maybe more <laughs> you know what I mean mm-hmm. so you're going to go in there and it's going to be a little bit intimidating probably which is sad it shouldn't be yeah. um, those individual people might not be intimidating but there is just this um, overarching intimidation and I think that's why a lot of movement designers and even uh, players kind of have this imposter syndrome of like, well, I'm not sure. I'm not this. Like, no, no, no. You're just as good as these guys. It's just there's only six of us and there's 800 of them. Right. You know. Yep. So we've been dealing with this a lot recently. And I wouldn't really say in the last about five years, this has started kind of coming to a head for a lot of players. 
Yeah, yeah, I would yeah. think so. Yeah, yeah, I would say I've started noticing more and more as more women enter the gaming world, especially we're seeing it at conventions and things like that, not as much small local, local mm-hmm. things. So, I mean, I'm happy to, to report that from when we started doing this to now, I see so many more women out at conventions and role playing and having a good time and running companies. So, I mean, it, it's happening and it's slowly but surely getting there. Mm-hmm. But, right. It's, it's going to take a long time for that connotation, I think, to go away. Yeah. and But I think it'll get there. Like, I think that as more women get involved and as we just talk about our involvement, that makes a huge difference to the community. Just like being sort of open about the fact that like, yeah, I play the indie every week and, you know, here's what I like about my character or, you know, have you played this game? And I think you would like that. Like social media is a great place to sort of make those connections and help bring that about. And I think that for a while, people were just sort of letting the loudest voice in the room be the one that was listened to. And as we, you know, as we deal with horrible stuff in real life, I think more people are coming to realize that like, I don't have to let that happen. I don't have to let the loudest voice in the room be the only voice. Like if I like games, I want to play games. I'm going to go into those spaces and I might be anxious about it, but I belong just as much as anyone else. And I think that's really valuable and important. Oh, I agree. Um, We touched on in our last episode, playing tabletop games has measurable physical and mental benefits. It's Uh, good for you. Uh, And it's not for everybody. I'm not saying like, "Ah." (laughs) this is a wonderful thing for everyone. But in general, and this is a big point I tried to drive home in my... um, the last episode we did is I have friends who for a long time told me they hated playing board games and tabletop games and uh, there's so much out there. And so eventually Mm -hmm. I convinced them, let's try these other games. Because what they didn't like about them was that they were competitive. (laughs) But there are games where you don't have to be competitive or it's competitive in a different way or you're playing against the game itself and instead of instead of playing against each other. Um, exactly, yeah. And they have since come around and they love certain games I've introduced them to, Dixit especially. Um, yes. <laughs> they love Dixit. But the point being, there's so much room for creativity. There's so many different games out there that I feel right. like when we think of tabletop gaming, we're thinking of like Clue, which is wonderful. I love Clue. But yeah, you know, like those big games, but there's so much out there and they're so artistic and creative and there's so many different mechanisms out there. Yeah. And I do think, you know, the one, uh, the one, I think the hurdle is starting now a little bit for uh, game designers that aren't making those huge epic, you know, six-hour board games is, you know, you're kind of in competition with uh, board game geek type crowd people that are like, that's that's a good game mm-hmm. versus Fix It, which is a good game. You know, it's a fun game. Um, or, you know, another light game that's out that's very popular right now is King Domino or Patchwork or all these games that are kind of light and herbaceous. They're done in less than 30 minutes. They're still good games. 
they're the kind of games we bring out more often because more people can play them. You can get them done quicker. And, and that's the kind of games we make, too. The later fun, good mechanisms, but it's not going to take you six hours to play. It's very much something you could teach to your family members or your friends. So it's one of these things where, I mean, I sometimes feel like the, the game I just made, I was like, oh, I don't know if this is like a good enough game like that. And it's like, it is. It's just not Gloomhaven level of complexity. <laughs> and it doesn't need to be. So, um, you know, struggling with that hurdle is like the next thing I'm thinking of. Before we were like, cool, we made a game. And now we're like, okay, we make games. Uh, we made our game. You know? <laughs> so, it's a little different. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And like, I, I super get that. Like, because I too feel like if, if a game is going to, if I need to sit down at a board for an hour or longer, I'm, I'm probably not going to be able to play that game because I just I have too much energy and I'm too much like, Oh, I want to do a different thing, but I'll play like five to 10 shorter games all in a row, just because it's like different and exciting. And there's so much more out there now than there used to be for like someone who's, you know, a more casual gamer, sort of like in between that, like heavier game or somebody who wants to play, like, for example, Azul is another game that's out now that's casual, but has a lot of depth and doesn't require two hours of sitting at a table. And I'm so excited that the industry is growing that way because like there's room for all of those games. There's room for your like, 12-hour Warhammer campaign that you're going to play in one day, and there's room for, like, a casual card game like the Tea Dragon Society that you just want to play because it's cute and there's not a lot of dramatic tension there. We have some more of our conversation, but first we have a quick break for a word from our sponsor. back. Thank you, sponsor. Let's get back to the interview. It's been kind of a recent thing for me to discover, and I've been loving it, of mm-hmm. all of the spectrum of games that oh, you can play. Yeah. I know, like, we kind of touched on this, but I, I would love if you could give a little bit of a, a bigger um, explanation of, like, why, what drew you to developing tabletop games why why do that at all yeah like, like heather and i touched on earlier there was this concept of you know how could we make schrodinger's cat a game it literally was just a conversation about the friends we're having and it's like we grabbed the next cards and wrote some things on them right <laughs> and then yep. um, we were like wait a second this could actually happen and heather and i were just veering into the concept we could like see what it was going to be already we were coming up with names for the thing, we were ready to go. So because that happened, that could have been a once and done. But going through that process, at least for me, and it, I, you know, let me know if you think the same way, was once that got done, it was like, not only was that super fulfilling, it was super fun, and it like scratched those itches of creativity that some other like solo craft and artwork and writing like wasn't doing for me anyway. So the, the, a lot of the fun of what we do, what I, I like to do is think about like, a concept and like how could we make a game for that? Or think of a game concept or game mechanic. And be like, what kind of theme would that be? To me, that's like a fun puzzle that I'm solving all the time. So <laughs> I don't know about you, Heather, but that is that's what keeps me going with it. I think that that's really fun. 
Yeah, similar to what Heather said, I love the puzzle solving aspect of it. I love coming up with a pun about an animal and being (laughs) like, okay, now how could I turn this into a game? And another part of it for me is that um, I've been working in the video game industry for my day job since about 2005. And there's there's like a, a whole different conversation to be had about video games. But one of the things that draws me to tabletop is this very like social nature of it. And one of the things that I get really excited about is helping people have a particular experience, right? Like when I make a game in the back of my mind, I'm like, I want people to play this and I want them to feel happy about this aspect. I want them to laugh at this. I want them to feel a certain way and I want them to leave the table having just like felt fulfilled by what they've done. And so like that's part of it for me. And then another part of it is like introducing ideas and concepts because you can learn so much from games, right? Like you can learn weird facts about the world that you never knew. Um, It changes the way that your brain thinks, like you can learn more math, just stuff like that gets me really, really excited. Yeah, I agree with you on the, I do kind of think about like, what's the experience that they're having at the table? I've had game concepts where I was like 50% of the way, like this is the game, like, you know, this is definitely how the game's going to be. And then how they're playing it is not how I wanted this to go. <laughs> Back to the drawing board, you know, that kind of thing. So, I mean, it's, it's, sometimes it's frustrating because you have to go through a, a lot of levels of this puzzle solving. But I think that's kind of the fun, rewarding part about it is it was actually reminding me of when you were saying that, Heather, like, you know, how a, like a chef or something is like, oh, I was like so happy that they really enjoyed that meal, right? It's kind of, yeah. but you get it right and you feel like it was right. And then people enjoy what you did the way you expected them to go like, yes, that's what I'm looking for, right? And yeah, not going to happen every week like that or anything. Um, it's going to take a while to get these games out there and get that experience. But, you know, that's definitely what it is for me. And from a mechanics design, I have that math mind. So, you know, sometimes I go overly crunchy with the numbers and then I have to scale back. Other times, you know, Heather or I will come up with a concept and one of us will run with that. So so it's fun also for collaborating for me. Yeah. And I like, one thing I really, I want to say this out loud so the whole podcasting world can hear it. Like, <laughs> I think that Heather is her best designer. Like, she thinks in this perfect blend of math and theme. And so for me, it's super exciting to work on projects with her because like, I know that whatever she comes up with, it's going to be great. And like, she might not like it initially and we might want to make changes or whatever, but like, as soon as Heather started working on Meeple Party, which is the game that she designed that we'll have out later this year, I was just like, are you kidding me? You're a genius. I'm so excited we're making this game. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I love it. (laughs) Look at that support system too. Wow. I know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I love it. I love women supporting women. 
Yes, it is awesome. Thank you. But yeah, it's definitely like, you know, um, one of these things where, again, never th- I never thought that that's something I was going to do, but it just so, just so happened that, you know, after trying going through the process of the first game, it solidified it for us. So we're going to be going into this year, probably putting out two or three more card games, board games, and two or three more RPGs by the middle of next year. So we're definitely ramping up. So, yeah, <laughs> which is fun. We're, we're real excited. And we just, this week, we've had a conversation about a possible new venue for getting our games out there. And like every time that, we have those conversations and that we get to that point. It's so exciting because like I can feel the company growing and I can feel us growing as designers and as publishers. And it just, I don't know. It just makes me happy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, and then they always say like, do what you love. Right. It's like, well, it's like, I don't even have to force myself to do this. It's just something I'm always thinking about, you know, or, don't mind working on. So that's a pretty good sign that we like it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, spending a lot of our free time doing it, you know? I love the comparison to a, a good dish created by a chef. That's wonderful. It wasn't until Heather, the way Heather was talking about it. I'm like, you know what this is reminding me of? How mm-hmm. proud a chef is when, you know, when somebody plays the game. But it, but it is like that. And, um, yeah, I mean, that's what keeps it going. And I'm also, I also think it's really fun playing someone else's game and being like, oh my God, this is such a cool, like, what's come up with this concept? Because just because we're thinking of a million things doesn't mean we're not even touching the surface of what everybody else is doing either, you know? So it's, it's also really fun being in the gaming community and get to try these games before they come out by a bunch of different designers and, you know, see the way they're thinking. Which I also really like that. That's another angle that I didn't expect to be involved with either, going to all these industry events and things. So that's been good. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, (laughs) my, my minimal experience, uh, I'm getting ready to DM my first game for Dungeons and Dragons. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, it's been fun because we have a, a crew that's been playing for like a year and a half now and we take turns DMing and just knowing like one person who DMs is very good at this one thing and how creative they were about this and someone else was really good at this other thing and they were creative about this. Um, and it's been really rewarding and exciting to plan basically what sounds like a plan that no one will follow. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of um, playing other people's games, do you both have any favorites or any games that inspired you? Yeah. So for me, we we have these friends, Anthony and Nicole Amato. Their company is called Cardboard Fortress. And I'm always inspired by their games because... They're so unique. And whenever they have a prototype, I'm like, oh my gosh, I never would have thought of that. Like, that's just amazing. And another continual inspiration and sort of a favorite for me is the very old Palladium Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles role-playing game. Um, I, yeah, (laughs) Yeah. I must have read those books like a billion times like tried to run a game for my dad when I was 12 (laughs) and just 
for some reason, those books like really stuck with me and like really inspire me to world build. And then like, as far as games that I just want to play all the time, I always want to play Splendor and I always want to play this card game called Tempora, which is a push your luck game where everybody's a cat and you're trying to eat the most sushi without getting a tummy ache. <laughs> oh, I love <laughs> I it. <laughs> That's awesome. Yep, that is my life. Heather's right. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, it's funny. One of the games, like I guess that I'm not really a huge role-playing person. I didn't read you know, RPG books when I was younger. I don't really read them now, but one of the games that I always, always, always want to play and that I'm super groundbreaking for me to play with Fiasco, which is Jason Morningstar's kind of storytelling, but like an intro RPG that guides you uh, by building relationships. So that I'll play that any day. And it really got me over the hump of being nervous about role-playing and storytelling and makes me think about the way he sets his games up about how to do that from an experience level, you know, for, for our games. So definitely that for that perspective. And then I also love Splendor, but a game that's probably still out, but it was called Bonanza. Yes. <laughs> is a game where you plant beans in a field. It's a German game, so that's why it's called that. <laughs> it's a silly name. There's actually an interesting card mechanic strategy, but you also have to, similarly to settlers of the time, you have to kind of yell out and say, hey, hey, uh, I can give you this and negotiate and, and give people options. Of, well, if they're going to give you two of these, I can give you three, or I can give you this or this. And I like that a lot. So that's something else that kind of inspired me. Like, that's a different kind of mechanic than you're seeing by just moving pieces around the board. So that was one of the first games that you basically almost yelling at each other across the table, but it's super fun. So that's another one that I'll always play and thought it was an interesting concept. To piggyback on what Heather said, I've actually stopped playing Bonanza because I am not a competitive game player except for Bonanza. I will just turn into a monster at the table. And um, and Heather mentioned Jason Morningstar and the two of us were lucky enough to play a prototype of his at a convention this last fall. And it was so exciting because like, man, he thinks in these really unique ways and makes such fantastic games. Like, oh, and um, a cute little anecdote is that, you know, we're both named Heather and, you know, we're friends and we work together and we had not played Fiasco together. So a couple of years ago at a convention, we were like, hey, let's play Fiasco because a friend of ours had wrote a Fiasco playset for being in a wizard school. And completely separately, we both named our characters Bjork without knowing that the other one was doing it. <laughs> so we're awesome. like, oh, yeah, Bjork is wizard for Heather. That clearly is wizard for Heather. And it, it's so funny yep. because it's, you know, we don't see her all the time. I mean, we, we talk pretty often, but we were just like on that mind meld at that time. It was very funny. But um, yep, yep. yeah, definitely that one. If you haven't tried that, that fiasco game is a great intro if you, if you want to start role playing. Um, from experience, I can tell you that. <laughs> There's like a ton out there, but I would say those are the ones that can stick out to me as like pivotal moments. 
Oh, for me, it was a yeah. uh, pandemic for sure. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Oh we, my God. Yeah, what is it that you like about pandemic? I, I think it's because um, I could play it with two people. Mm. And like I said, yeah. a lot of my friends are, um, I'm very, I'm extremely competitive. I am so competitive. Yeah, I, I kind of <laughs> have to like, dial into a different persona when I'm playing with my non-competitive friends because I'll just turn them off of everything. Um, <laughs> but they liked Pandemic because we weren't competing against each other. We were competing against the game, even if it was very difficult. I think it was more like, they didn't want to create enemies. <laughs> um, we played Life once and we'll never talk about it again. Like, it was infamous. Oh, no! <laughs> it was infamous. I'm like, you know I didn't really win the lottery, right? <laughs> but uh, people were mad. <laughs> but pandemic... Fantastic. Yeah, it was great. I Like, we will not talk about it. I remember specifically... People were arguing about kids, about jobs, and it's a game. Oh, wow. <laughs> yep. Yeah. But um, I loved I loved Pandemic because it, it allowed me to introduce friends of mine who I hang out with a lot to a game that they would actually play, and nice. um, yeah. it was fun. That's awesome. We have a little bit more left to discuss, but first we have one more quick break forward from our sponsor. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Let's get back to it. One thing that is not awesome that I did want to talk about is, as I'm sure both of you know, you're kind of a rarity in the world of tabletop game development. Uh, I believe it's less than 10%. I think it's 8% of uh, tabletop game developers are women. Mm -hmm. It sounds like both of you have had a generally good experience, but have you experienced sexism in this tabletop gaming world or other obstacles that have gotten in your way? Yeah, I mean, I I wouldn't say it's it's really, really horrible or anything like that, but I, I feel like definitely there has been some where, you know, especially before anybody knew my name or our names. It was like, who the heck are these people? How is their Kickstarter doing that good? It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. If that was some dude, you wouldn't have said anything about it, you know? So so some of that kind of stuff in the very beginning or more consumer people would say, oh, oh, you made this game. It's like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) They'd be taken aback as you're actually talking about it. They think, oh, you're a woman in the booth. You're just here to sell the game to me. You don't make the games. And uh, that was, that's, I think, changed a little bit because people, maybe not, but I haven't noticed as many consumers doing it, but I definitely remember the first couple of years them being shocked that was like, oh, you made this game. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely, I've, I've experienced that as well, the, the surprise that, like, you know, I made the game. And then there's also, this happens to me a lot when I'm demoing, and I tend to just let it go because it doesn't feel worth the fight to me. But a lot of times when I'm explaining how to play a game, if the group is mixed or all dudes, they will jump in and start explaining for me. Oh, boy. And <laughs> yeah, I find that really 
frustrating. And I definitely have run into like, if I'm talking to, you know, a, a man who's developing games, the thing that happens is like, I'll be really excited about an idea and every once in a while, like the, the dudes in the industry that I talk to about it are like, Oh yeah, that's okay. But what if you did this instead? <laughs> and that's kind of disappointing. Um, and most of the time I don't listen to them, which is good. Like that's my advice. If someone's saying like things like that, that are making you feel bad, just stop listening to them. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and the thing I could think, one of the things that's hard, there's two levels of this. So there's the level where it's a consumer, that's really hard because I'm trying to sell a game to you, okay? So Heather's trying to demo this game. People don't necessarily buy our game, right? And you don't want to start anything with these people because you want them to buy the game. But also, where's that line where we we say, okay, like, buddy, you got to stop, you know? But doing that, it's feels like you're saying it's not worth a fight in that situation. I've seen more, I've had more things happen in the industry that were either just completely looked over, like there's a two dude designers at the table and me at a table and another dude comes up and like doesn't even say hi to me because he's fanboying on the other people. That definitely happens. And just, you know, some nicer uh, people or some, you know, more aware people will sometimes say something like, oh, what do you think, Heather? Because they could tell that the other two people are just in their own world, just completely ignoring me. And we're having a game design conversation. And they just assume I don't know anything about game design. That's definitely happened a couple of times. And I think partly that there is kind of this, it's not really right, it's not really their fault, but there are certain game designers that are men in the industry that anything they touch is basically gold to a bunch of people. And... Even other male designers can't compete with them, and let alone a female designer compete with them. So sometimes I'm in a yeah. situation talking with them, and they're talking to me, and everything's fine. But it's the other people around us that either completely ignore me, completely dismiss what I say, overstep when I'm talking, talk right over me, and it's like whoa, whoa, whoa. You know? So I've had a lot of those situations where if I know them well enough, I might just say like, whoa, what the heck, you know? But if I don't know these people or I'm in a weird situation, even and I'm a pretty confident person, I will still kind of feel like, okay, that was bad and I got to get out of the situation. There's been things like that from an industry perspective that I, that I did not like, obviously. Definitely... The, the idea that Heather had where the, the concept you're talking about where someone will just say, oh, I have this better idea mm. for, for what you're working on. Yeah. I've definitely seen from playtesting groups and different things. I run one of the locations of a group called the Game Makers Guild in Philadelphia. So Nicole, who also is from here, she runs the one in Philadelphia. I run, run the one in the Philadelphia suburbs. And Usually, it's mostly all men. There might be one other woman that shows up in my group. And there's a lot I got to deal with there. Now, because I run it and because they're introduced to me right away as the the leader, I usually don't have too many problems. But sometimes I do. (laughs) And Mm. that's tough as well. Where either, you know, getting a word in edgewise, then taking your opinion to heart and actually thinking you know what you're talking about, that kind of stuff. After they hear, oh, oh, you own a game company? Oh, you, you have a couple of published games? Oh, then they change the game. But if I came in and just started talking, mm-hmm. I think, and they didn't know that, 
I think I'd even get more pushback. But sometimes I have to be like, well, let me take out this game. And, you know, this one sells pretty well at Barnes & Noble. They're like, oh, wait a second. You know, so all of a sudden I got my friends <laughs> because of that. But if I don't, if I don't have that and I'm just another game designer or just another woman with good feedback that doesn't have this quick comeback to them, they're probably discounting everything that you just say, you know, which is annoying. You know, and I don't know necessarily how to change that. <laughs> Yeah, I think we have to start respecting women. (laughs) Yeah, well, (laughs) (laughs) we've had a good experience. We're not, you know, necessarily jaded by the industry. However, we still have this kind of stuff happen to us, and we're we're in a good situation, right? Yeah, (laughs) yep. So take that to heart. You know, Um, this is the best option that you're probably going to hear uh, a story you're going to hear from people. So, you know, yeah, I mean, I I don't, because we're talking game industry and there's a lot of men in the game industry, this is coming up. But if you just think about like just in general, like in a business world or, you know, talking about whatever else we're talking about, tech world, whatever, it's probably very similar. It's just so happens that because we're talking about this. Yeah. We're saying game industry. It's really not just game industry. It's yeah. really men versus women, you know, men and women. But it's just so male dominated that it's sometimes I think even unconscious that these guys even come up with a concept that that we would know what we're talking about. And it's, to them, they're they're innocent in that. Oh, I didn't know. Like, well, you need to know. <laughs> so there's some yeah. of that happens too. Yeah. So. I think that's very true. I think a lot of it is like people just not knowing any better, right? And because I spend a lot of time on the internet, that allows me to learn a lot very quickly, but not everybody does that. And so there's part of me that's like, okay, I'm going to call things out when I see them as much as I can. But I also, I also understand that sometimes people need a little time to learn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I mean, I'll give someone the benefit of the doubt here and there. But we definitely, and I definitely have seen it happen where, you know, it's the same person, the same group of people. They either don't want to learn or they don't care or they literally can't get the concept. <laughs> sometimes there's that. Yeah. They've been told already. They either, it goes right over their head. They don't even understand what we're talking about. They choose not to listen or they think they're listening and helping and they're really not. <laughs> there's a lot of that. Yep. Too. Which yep. I, that bothers me actually sometimes more when someone tries to, you know, be on a woman's side and you can't quite tell if it's real or not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sometimes that is, they, they're so overboard sometimes that I can't tell if it's even real. But I'll take that over some of the other stuff. I'll I'll take that. But sometimes there there is some of that too. That I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just it's so much because it's so social. Unlike video games and all of that, like you're not just doing all this on chats and tweets, which is horrible. And people will say more because it's it's anonymous. But this is stuff that they're saying to your face. And even though it might not be as harsh as what would be said on Twitter they're still saying something to you or about you. And even if it's only 10% of what they would say on Twitter, it's like, there's something behind that. Right. Yeah. And sometimes the tone even you can tell. So there's definitely 
that is where I've noticed, and it probably is just the state of the world, definitely have noticed people speaking up a little bit more on things and overstepping people a little bit more in the last few years, being a little less PC, I would say, conventions. Not all conventions, but I have seen that a little bit popping up. And again, try to nip that in the bud, and we haven't had too many horrible situations happen around us or anything, but I've definitely witnessed it, seen it, and heard about it a lot in the last couple of years, which is a shame. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What other problems do you see, if any, and how could we make tabletop games better for everyone? Big question. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. We're going to solve all the problems right now. Yeah, we're going to do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that right now there's a problem of pricing. Um, one of the things that I see is like there'll be prices that will be for a game on Kickstarter. There's the price that it is in your friendly local game store. And then there's the price that it is in Target. And if you're a person who has started out buying your games in Target, and then you're going to a game store or a convention, and maybe you're a little surprised that the prices are higher, and it's it's all a matter of scale, right? Like we can't, as a small company, take the risk of printing enough copies that our cost is so low that we can sell at lower costs. And I I think there's sort of um, people don't always realize what they're getting for their money, what they should be getting for their money, and and also on the flip side, what they should be charging. Um, as more people get into game design and development, they don't know. They don't know what to sell their games for, and they'll they'll print like you know two hundred page hardcover that they need to sell for forty dollars, and then it may not do as well. And I think that that sort of There are so many aspects to the problem. And I think the other thing that we are missing as an industry is actionable data. We don't have uh, central organizations that are gathering like that pricing data and what it's manufacturing is is costing and what is the demographic data depending on genre of game. And that's all stuff that really empowers people to make the correct choices for the games they want to make. And if I could like change anything about the industry that didn't have to do with sexism, it would be that. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. I I would piggyback a little bit on just quickly on that is so many people, consumers, I will say, will look at a game. They'll only look at the size of the box or the pieces in the box and they'll say, Oh, that's not worth $40 or only $20. But maybe the box is really big. It's all full of empty space in there, and it has 25 cards. But it's, oh, it's only $20. Whereas a box that's smaller, that has tons of pieces in it, and it has a long uh, replayability life cycle for $40, they're going to say, oh, that's not, that's 40 bucks. I'm not paying 40 bucks for that. And there's just this perceived value. Marketing toys has already messed this up for people's brains, all of us. Want all that plastic packaging? I want to see all the pieces. I want to know this box is really big, and I want this cool insert. And they don't really understand that the only people that can do that and keep that price low are printing a hundred thousand copies, right? So um, mm-hmm. it is a shame for people in the the indie role that 
are making really good gains, it's super hard to compete at a high level, right? And you get your breakthroughs and that's great. And then you usually start doing that many. <laughs> so you can actually sell it cheaper. Um, but there's there's definitely some of that where um, it's really hard to, to change people's perspective of perceived value. And it doesn't help when the industry is all over the place because uh, we've said this a couple of times. I think Chris might have come up with it or maybe somebody else came up with this concept, which was gaming industry is kind of like the indie music industry, right? There's a hundred different genres and subgenres and things, and everybody has their favorite game, and they're not the same. And there's a million different labels. You can also self-publish. You can play this little show, and you have a following, and you're happy, or you need to sell out stadiums. And it's it's very similar and chaotic, and also run very crazily, like the industry of, of music, where there isn't really hard data on what's going to work because it's taste driven. So you've got your taste-driven sales that they're buying it no matter what it costs. And then you've got your perceived value people. So that's something I don't know if it'll ever change, but I agree that that's tough in our market because some people are, who are new or coming into the industry being, oh, well, you know, Exploding Kittens is $19.99 or $14.99 or whatever. My game needs to be $14.99. They can't even make enough money to sell it for $14.99. So then you see the shame. You see people come out of the gate. They actually lose money on their first Kickstarter. They either fold as a company. It's a shame because a lot of these things happen. Like kind of a thing. There's not really data out there. And unfortunately, it takes years and years and time to find out a lot of this information. So it, while it's great that we are growing as an industry and bringing a lot of new designers in, I'm just worried that so many of them are just going to has such a hard time. So, yeah, that's an issue. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I would agree. Yeah, about it, yeah. I mean, the only, I, I wouldn't say as far as, you know, it seems to me, uh, the other thing we have talked about a lot is representation just in general in games. Yeah. And I can't say the numbers because there is no data on this, but I would say that probably... In the last five years, I'll just say generically, there has been an uptick when I'm looking at games. I'm noticing like, oh, there's three female characters. Or right. look, this game has a same-sex couple in this picture. Or look, there's a person of color over here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, all these different things. Not where we need to be, but because okay. I'm still noticing. I'm still like, oh, look, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know uh, good job. You know, there's, there's more of that being thought at least. People are starting to think about it, so maybe in five more years, it'll just be kind of second nature, hopefully. <laughs> you know? Yeah. A statistic I found that has been reaffirmed by more than one study is that you're more likely to find a sheep on the cover art yeah. of a tabletop game as opposed to a woman. That's, that's, that's yeah. right. <laughs> yeah, and, and and sometimes some of the some of the pictures of women that are on some of these games are oh gosh pictures, yeah the, the pictures of women that we do not oh you are totally correct <laughs> so on that they, you know what I mean um so sometimes yeah, they're there but it's not in the way that they should be there exactly. um you know one of the things we do and I, you know I didn't even think about this because it's so second nature and Heather Wilson was an advocate for this right off the bat the Schrodinger's cats which are about cats they're not human people, but we made sure that we talked about having at least 50% female representation. And they are based off real female physicists. So, you know, we did do that. And in a lot of our games, or almost, I guess, all of our games, we've done that. 
where we say, okay, we need to have, if, if, if we have a male designer on that game, it's got to be a female artist or vice versa. You know, we'll say like, if we can, we'll like to get both. But if we can't, at least one of those two major things is female. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We try very, very hard to do that, to introduce diversity into the product itself and into the people that we work with. Yeah. That's, I guess that. we can't instill diversity in them. I mean, we try and make sure that it's diverse. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, I, I agree. Um, you know, there's so many games. I still remember the story. It was probably like eight, six or eight years ago. A guy was bringing in a game. And it was, of course, like kind of a Dungeon Crawler type themed game. And there were six characters. And... The game was fine. At the end of the game, somebody said, why are they all white dudes? And he's like, you know, we never even noticed that. And we're like, yep. <laughs> I'm sure you never did. So it just, it's just one of these things that sticks out that is hopefully changing as it gets pointed out more and more and as people, like you said, advocate for it and designers that want to do it, right? And there's more designers in the industry, I think, now than there was five, ten years ago that actively want that in their game. So, you know, we're working towards that. Yeah, that's great. I think as more women are like, I I am a great example because I was someone who was so intimidated by this world. And then as I've come into it, as I've seen other women do it and talk about it and Mm -hmm. um, seen all these games that I can play, I have become a big advocate for it. I bought female friends in who are now play games so I think that's a big piece of it. Do you have any useful advice for women who are getting into tabletop games or who want to, like um, either playing on the playing side or developing side? Useful advice is a loaded term. Do you have any advice? <laughs> I'll take any advice. Well, let me say on the play- yeah, let me say on the playing side, because I would say on the playing side, I've also brought a lot of friends into gaming over the last few years. And... A lot of people who also, like your friends, thought they would never play tabletop games. I would say that if you are someone who's thinking about trying a tabletop game and your friends have been asking you to go do it, there's two things that you should think about. First of all, go in non-judging it because maybe it's not as complex or crazy or scary as you thought. But also speak up about the kind of games you did like after that game day. Because what I'll find is some people will really like the co-op pandemic type games. And then they'll hate the magic two-player combat game. And other people will say, you know, I really like this card game where I got to make all these decisions. And they'll, they'll find another side of themselves that didn't even know was there that's being brought out by the game. And I'm somebody who also, I don't need to, I, I like some themes in games, but I kind of like the, the feeling of the game more than the feel of the game. So sometimes you have to look past that too. I've seen so many people look at a game and go, no, nope, I don't want to play that. If you didn't hear the rules, we didn't try it yet. <laughs> I bet you you're going to like it. I know there's a dragon on the cover, but like, ignore the dragon and then it's going to be okay. <laughs> or I know there's like a scary looking monster. It's not actually scary. You know, sometimes, you know, we, we can't control uh, what these games are, but a lot of times the mechanics are what's really fun. And then you'll find through that mechanic, oh, I like games like this. Oh, you like games like this. Well, there's also these 60 other games probably, right? Mm-hmm. Um which is fun. So I would suggest that once you do find anything that you even remotely like, tell your gamer friend that you like that, and they could probably suggest a bunch of other games in that genre. 
And on the design side, my advice would be find some allies quickly. Find community. Look around and see what other women in the world are designing and developing games and contact them. Like contact them via Twitter or Facebook or wherever you find them. Meet them at cons and and build yourself a community of allies who are gonna help you feel good about what you're doing and help you remember why you wanted to make games so that at those times when you feel discouraged, you've got some friends to back you up, you know, and like find people who are at the stage that you're at, find people who are newer than you, find people who've been doing it way longer than you and, and, and talk to them, pick their brains and, and, Ask them to be a support for you and in turn support them. Like having women in the industry that I'm friends with has made a huge difference for me. Like it it makes me feel like, hey, I belong here too. And look, so do all these other women. Yeah, and I, I would say that's definitely true. There's a there's a very I would say tight-knit community, meaning that they're open to talking to anyone. And any woman that reaches out to them, they, you know, or anyone actually that reaches out to them, they would probably talk to. However, um, you know, if you don't know how to go about doing this and you, you go on to a game convention, you see, oh, I see some women at this booth. You know, did you guys make these games? I've literally had people come up to me at conventions and say, oh, is this your company? And then I said, yes. And then they say, oh, okay, well, I'm actually just thinking about making a game and I wanted to ask you some questions. And then you know, I'm giving them my card. I told them to email me. We've had numerous people contact other people and other uh, women designers or company owners in our group via Twitter or something and say, hey, I just wanted to ask you some advice. I didn't know how, who else to reach out to, but I knew you did this game or I knew you worked in this company. And that's how it started. And now sometimes they're part of our group. You know, it just so happens that that's kind of how it is because there isn't really a resource, one resource where you can find everybody. So I think having this advice of you know, just reaching out if email or Twitter is better hmm. uh, than in person, great. And they'd be more than happy. Most people will be more than happy to, to, to walk through it and give you resources. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think that people who are passionate about something are more than happy to help other people who are passionate about the same thing. Yep. What about, you've kind of touched on this a little bit, but to close out, um, what about the both of you? Do you have any projects on the horizon you're excited about or any other things that you're excited about in this tabletop realm? Um, Well, well, Heather Wilson has her first uh, role-playing game coming out this spring, which will be the excellence based mm-hmm. off of the, the system that we're creating this year. So that's exciting. And then I have my first uh, solo design board game coming out in probably early summer called Meeple Party, which is a co-op uh, game about a party. And they're all little meeples, like from Carcassonne, the little guys. And... Uh, they all have different personalities and you move them around and try to take photos. <laughs> so it's a very nonviolent theme, but it's co-op and, and uh, I'm hoping that that really resonates well with the woman audience. And I think Heather's excellent skill as well. Did you want to go over what that is? Yeah. 
So the excellence is a role-playing game in which you are a princess and you're not, the, the term princess is not gendered in this game. You just, you're a princess of a thing. Like you can't, it, it can't be general. You can't be like the princess of music, but it needs to be specific. Like you're the princess of sad country songs or something like that. Mm-hmm. And each session is played like an adventure, like an eighties or nineties cartoon where, you know, you've got a thing that you're trying to get, but really the goal is just to be better for, and it's a lot of fun. And one thing that I'm excited that Heather is working on is um, a game that we've been wanting to make for a while, which is Pavlov's Dogs. And she ran through a number of design iterations and it just kept getting better. So we're getting a lot closer to getting it to the point where we'll think about how we want to bring it to market. So I'm excited about that. And I'm also excited about um, a card game that I'm working on, which it was going to be called Alpha Birds, but there's another game out there called Alpha Birds. (laughs) So we were calling, we've tentatively been calling it Nom de Plume. And I made a little bit of a breakthrough with the design a few months ago. And so I'm excited to move forward with that and get it closer to, uh, you know, where we would want people to be playing it. So I'm I'm just, I'm excited about everything we're doing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I am too. I want to play all of these things. Yeah, yeah. We just got together last weekend and had like a big like planning session for the year. So we're all soaked up right now. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And we we came up with some nice like like guidelines for for I mean it's something we've always done, right? Heather and I and Chris have very much been in sync in the kinds of games that we want to make without ever really articulating it. So we sat down and we started to articulate like, okay, well, how do we define the types of games we make? And it was so cool because it was like, oh yeah, this is exactly what we've been doing all along. And we just put some words to it. So it was, it was great. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love it. I'm so excited to see what the both of you do in the future. Um, I'm a big fan, like I said. So thank you. I'm very excited. And I'm so glad that the both of you joined us for this episode. Um, Where can people find you? Well, uh, they can find us on Twitter and Instagram at ninth level games. And that's nine, the numeral. Um, And uh, we're on Facebook as well. And then personally, you can find me on Twitter at Reindeer B. And then my my personal Twitter is at Cat Physicist. And also, <laughs> you can just check out everything. Uh, pretty much, we have everything on our website that we're working through early 2020 right now. So that's ninth level nine th level dot com. So we've got a couple of those things going up. You can get some concepts of what we're working on there. Awesome. Well, thank you both so much for for doing this and for doing it after hours. I know you have another job. I, I appreciate it a lot. And uh, like I said, I'm a big fan. So this was exciting for me. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much Great. for having us. Awesome. This has been awesome. Yeah. <laughs> that brings us to the end of this super special bonus interview episode. Thanks again to both of the Heathers for joining us. And thanks to Tracy B. Wilson for putting me in touch with them. I really want to play some games now. 
As you might have noticed, some things are changing here at Stuff Mom Never Told You since Bridget is moving on to other projects and we all miss her so much and I'm so excited for her and see what she will do. We'll keep you posted on what she's up to and with any luck, you'll hear from her again soon on this very show. We're working on some cool things and making more new content and trying to nail down the format and the voice and I can't wait to share that stuff with you. In the meantime, I can't express enough how much I appreciate all of you listeners and your support and your patience. And thanks as always to our producer, Andrew Howard. And thank you again for listening. <laughs>